Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Episode 190 of Smart Enough to Know Better. We're a podcast of science. And comedy. And ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston. And I am Gregoire. And in this episode of Smart Enough to Know Better, we have an interview with an amazing professor about an amazing topic. It's going to be trippy. When people think of psychedelics... Their minds invariably go to the 60s and the 70s or books like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or even the very crazy movie based on it. You're thinking of illicit substances, things that are against the law. You may be thinking of even of things passed around your social groups, allegedly. I'm not accusing you, wonderful listener, of anything at all. This is not going to stand up in a court of law. But it's not something in our mainstream society. It's not something we talk about politely. It's something hidden away. It was decades ago. It's all about destroying culture or saving the universe, one or the other. Everyone's got an opinion on one way or the other. But really, it's not something we discuss So I was fascinated to see an article by the CSIRO here in Australia, Australia's federal science organization, saying that maybe we're going to start working with psychedelics and purifying them. So we reached out to Dr. Peter Dugan from the CSIRO and also Flinders University to have a conversation. Hello, Dr. Peter. Greetings, fellow nerds. Actually, what's the etiquette there? How, do, how are nerds meant to uh, greet each other? They just buzz binaries back and forth at each, <laughs> yes. each other, like those characters from Star Trek. <laughs> All right, I'll have to work on that. So, we, so, so you are working on medicinal psychedelics, is that That's correct? That's correct, yes. That's fascinating. How, what, how, who, why? Just start from the start. Well, how far should I go back? So CSIRO started working with products from plants, Back in the late 1940s, and they were involved in something called the phytochemical survey. They were surveying all the plants around mostly uh, eastern Australia and even into Papua New Guinea looking for medicinal properties, particularly anti-cancer properties. Now, a lot of medications come from plants, hasn't it? Correct. That was the motivation. So and those just prior to the Second World War, the British Army used Australia as a source of certain really important medicines that they couldn't get to the troops and Australia became a major producer of scopolamine and other things that were needed for the troops mm. while they were fighting in the Pacific. CSIRO thought there must be other plants in Australia that produce medicines that we could use and they particularly focused in on anti-cancer mm. properties and so they did a massive survey together with academics around Australia, a massive survey of Australian plants looking for potential anti-cancer agents. Nothing commercial came out of that. And then not much happened with plant-based medicines at the CSIRO for almost three decades. And then in the early 2000s, we were approached by some small local companies to help them develop medicines from the plants that they were looking at. So we did a few small projects and a a couple of commercial products came from that. And then I, I came on the scene, I started working with a company called Botanical Resources Australia, on their pyrethrum production. So that pyrethrum produces a natural insecticide and you may use it uh, on your roses mm. in your gardens maybe. But it's a really excellent insecticide because it has a very short lifetime in mm. the environment and it has very low mammalian toxicity. And most of my friends are mammals, so that's good. I yes, that. yes, it's good for, good for mammals or <laughs> it doesn't hurt them. And there's a company in Tasmania that produces more than 60% of the world's commercial production of this Mm. pyrethrum extract. And so I was brought in to help them. We had a series of projects working on helping them to improve their process, doing analytical work. Okay, so this isn't the really exciting bit, right? No, no. I love the fact the audience is like, we come for the psychedelics. He's just... It's going to get exciting. (laughs) Don't worry. It's just like like when you take drugs. There's like the first bit where you're not sure whether it's working. And then it gets really... Allegedly, Dan. Allegedly, you could you could say that I p- couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> then I thought, hold on, there's a lot of great things that companies are producing from plants in mm. Australia, and CSIRO is not really helping helping them much That's with this. And good. I thought, well, how can we help them more? So I started to spruik around, saying, "Hey, we can help you mm. with this stuff." I did a few projects with some companies, and I developed some flyers and put stuff on my <laughs> LinkedIn page and that sort of thing. You know, just to tell the world, you know, we can do this. And then in 2016, I started to get these weird messages being left on my 
answering <laughs> machine. And I was on leave at the time. When I came back, I had this whole series of weird messages on my answering machine. And I thought, well, I'll just follow it up. It could be something. You know, it might be real. turned out to be a cannabis, medicinal cannabis had just been made legal for medical use mm. in Australia. And then there was a whole lot of companies starting up that were wanting to develop their medicinal cannabis products. And one of them saw that CSIRO does work mm. with botanicals because of, you know, the collateral I'd put out there. And so they wanted to see if we could help them. So it turned out to be a genuine <laughs> inquiry. And uh, a year later, we started our first project in 2017. We set up a, a secure Can I just say facility. That, was that was that email? Was that, yep. So was that message like Zoinks? I'm just wondering if uh, if you could help me and my dog do some research, that sort of stuff. <laughs> a more serious question. I want to know. I want. I want to be in the room when you walked into your manager and went hi. Had this request to start working on medicinal cannabis, and then I want to know what was the face they made. <laughs> Because <laughs> that must be an interesting conversation to go, look, look, I know it's going to sound strange, but I need funding from Australia's premier science organization to develop cannabis. <laughs> that must be interesting. Also for snacks. Oh, yes, yes. I'm going to need a very large snack budget for no reason. <laughs> for no reason Unconnected. I think the old eyebrows sort of uh, hit the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> that point. Yes, because yeah. it's got that feeling of all organizations have a, a reputational threat value and you're like, oh, okay, yep. we don't want to damage the brand. We don't want to, you know, reduce people's yep. interest in our organization. It's a serious conversation. It must have been yep. a really interesting conversation to have. My managers and even further up the organization, they were quite open to this in the fact because it was already starting to get some good publicity and they could see that these companies were trying to establish themselves and they were starting to have quite a number of starting to have a presence on the stock mm. exchange. Yeah, they were willing to give it a shot. We have to be very careful how we handle the messenger yes. around all this. Mm. You want to ease up. Yeah, we are a serious yes. organisation. <laughs> you, you want to make incremental steps from cannabis at a bunch of different steps before you hit heroin, <laughs> for instance. Yes, yes, yes. So we don't, we're steering away from opiates yeah. at the yeah. moment. Yeah. But, but yeah. then they're used uh, in medicine as well, aren't they? Oh, okay. True. True. I, I thought you were making yeah. a comment. I sorry, Dan. I apologise. I was I was maligning your uh, comment there, Dan. Even before, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, I was definitely making a uh, malignable <laughs> comment. So, uh, Doctor Peter is a serious scientist, okay. and we're just going to point that out. And the organisation he works for is a very serious organisation. But this is this yes, is what yes, but yes. the jokes that we're making. It makes it. I think leads into the point. This is strange. It, it feels odd. After years of it not happening or happening in the background or quietly happening, it was something in, as I said, polite side we didn't talk about. Now serious research is going into classifying these things and uh, what do you call it when you? It's medicalizing mm, illicit drugs. That, yeah, yes, turning it from drugs into and medicine, like getting them. it in people's brains. Yes. Like it's because I, I take medicine and no one's going to yell at me for that. But if I take drugs, everyone's like, "Ooh, waggy finger." It's changing the mindset almost for the right reasons. I yep. mean. Uh, it yep. said in your in the article, which we'll link in the show notes, that one in five people probably have some sort of level of mental illness. And that's not because people are going more crazy, to use a word I probably shouldn't use. It's the fact that we're diagnosing these things better nowadays. There are better diagnostics. And there are drugs that we have aren't very useful or don't work for a lot of people. So this is a serious thing, but it still feels funny and strange. I guess the thing that uh, made it, did it for the organisation was that the Therapeutic Goods Administration and the Office of Drugs control had allowed through legislation allowed companies to start to work in this space so it had the government imprimatur yeah. as a you know way of speaking and so csro wasn't sticking their neck out too far because it had already been decided mm. further up the, and that's the uh, only the difference between away. illicit and illicit drugs because cocaine was like super legal mm. up until someone went we need this to stop <laughs> everyone's having far too much fun and their septums are dissolving yep. so we have to yep. alcohol is legal yes, now yes cigarettes you can buy cigarettes across you know all yeah so that was five years ago and so we started working mainly with one company we've worked with other companies since and we had to establish this secure facility get all the licenses to allow us to work with cannabis so state and federal licenses and then some of these cannabis companies well as well as other companies started to become interested in psychedelics as well 
And they're at a, a different stage because they're still considered illegal substances, what are called Schedule 9 poisons, rather than restricted drugs. That hasn't changed yet, but there's a lot of companies that think that this, this will change in the future and they're promoting clinical trials. I noticed that this was happening and I thought, hold on, we should be ready for this. And I looked at our license and at, the, at that point, it, it only allowed us to hold and work with cannabis and cannabinoids and synthetic cannabinoids. So I decided to extend our license to include as many psychedelics as I could think of that anyone could potentially want to make a drug out of. So I added a 16 new compounds to our list. That must have been another interesting conversation. Everyone's calmed down about the cannabinoid. Everyone's like, oh yeah, Peter, Peter's, Peter, yeah. he's, he's got under control. And you're like, by the way, I want to add 16 yeah. psychedelics. And, and everyone's like, oh, he's back again. <laughs> yeah. But in my Clark Kent uh, persona, um, <laughs> they trust me because I'm a pretty straight laced exactly. sort of guy and I wouldn't be doing this. if I, I like wasn't. the implication <laughs> that that means that Superman is a drug fiend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or an ex, or Dan, we'll an excellent researcher. That. Careful, steady. All right. <laughs> or both. <laughs> and so that set us up to be in a position where if any companies came to us, we would be able to start doing mm. work with them because we already had the, the security situation in place and now we were legally allowed mm. to work with it. And then we thought, well, why don't we just tell the world? Mm. So Emma in comms helped us to produce a... Press release and release the press release and then... <laughs> Your life has become interesting. <laughs> we were inundated. <laughs> but prior to that, we'd already been talking to a couple of companies and we already had one a signed contract with one company and then a second one signed pretty soon after that and we have a third one close and then there's others. We're talking to more and it's it's really sort of snowballing. It's it's really, really exciting now, and interesting. I just want to clear up. You're not working on the efficacy of these drugs for clinical trial in, in psychiatric care or anything like that. That's not your area. You're more in the production side. That's right. We're doing translational research. So any very interesting results obtained in the laboratory on small-scale studies or anecdotal results or very, very small-scale uh, clinical trials, how do you turn that into a medicine that a doctor is mm. prescribing? Well, you've got to work out how to manufacture the stuff in a quality that the Therapeutic Goods Administration or the FDA in the US will approve in quantities that will allow reasonable-scale clinical trials to be run. And if, if the results of those trials are mm. good, then eventually the drug can be registered as a legitimate mm. medicine. But how do you get to that point where you run those clinical trials with good quality, enough product to give mm. it to people? Well, you need people like us to fill that gap, work out the procedures, work out the isolation methods, purification methods, mm. fully document it so that a pharmaceutical manufacturing company can manufacture the product for and there's, a, there's the issue i think that you, when you hear about people taking illicit drugs a lot of time what you hear is don't do it because you don't know what it's been laced with or the purity level and there's lots of bad things in it beyond the drug itself which may or may not be bad as well so someone made it in a bathtub you know like that sort of stuff and god knows what's yeah. in it and yep. so in a serious way you don't want to give that to a patient i mean there's that you can't just go make buy it off the street and give it to someone you've got to make sure that it's it's the, right. the you're testing a certain compound not all this horrific mix of stuff and you need it to be you need to be giving the same thing to all your patients in the mm. clinical trial so you need to have good quality control across the board right yeah so the previous stage is then working out what everything does it, when they make like every different version that they make and go oh no this is the one that we want how do they provide that to you so that you can then start to scale up or solve these logistics problems so most of them are actually natural products and they've come from cultural uh, traditional use for example in mexico central america the amazonian rainforest been using certain brews for thousands of years ah. and so that's one way into this and companies are trying to turn that brew into a legitimate mm. medicine. So they already know what plants they're using. They've already worked out probably what the most likely the psychoactive substances mm. are. They might want to produce just a pure single compound drug. For example, psilocybin, which occurs in certain mm. mushrooms. That's a drug that's being pursued vigorously here and overseas. And mostly they actually just want to prescribe the pure mm psilocybin mm -hmm. 
Therefore, they need a way of producing that in good quality and quantity, mm. like I said before. Or it could be a brew like ayahuasca, where people, <laughs> you go, you, oh, I've vaguely that? heard. Um, <laughs> sort of, yes, I don't actually know that one. It's a brew used in the Amazonian rainforest, and it's a combination of two, at least two different plants. One of the active ingredients is dimethyltryptamine. Mm. They're pretty sure they know what the actives are. They know what plants you can get it from. They also know there are some other plants that don't grow in the Amazonian rainforest that also have these components. So you might not necessarily use those plants. You might use a plant that grows readily in Australia, for example. But to scale up, you need to then raise a whole bunch of these plants and propagate them and farm them. You can't sort of do them artificially. (laughs) That's a point I might go into. But yes, it's really important that we don't. For example, there's a plant that occurs in small isolated populations in northern New South Wales. That's a source of one of these actives now we can't go and just mm. rip all that out and extract it and say hey we've got a product because mm. then there's none of that plant left so if you're going to use a plant source it's really important to get it from a plant that's easily propagated mm. and can be easily regenerated is it also that in the end you start with plants but then you work out a way to manufacture it in a lab through a chemical process and then you just and then you yep. just, that's how you make it into an actual drug you sell out so that so you can now f- pump it out with a chemical yeah a reaction or something like yep. that. Ah, okay. So a lot of the psilocybin that's imported into Australia, I think, is actually synthetic that's used in these trials. And we do we work we're doing with one company. In the end, though, we'll probably want a natural source of it, but it occurs at such low levels and is so expensive, then a synthetic source is needed just to run the clinical mm. trials so that they can establish the efficacy of those compounds. And then they might go back to a natural source later. Can you, now, the so other I thing I wanted to mention... Sorry, just, just, I, yeah, no, sorry. no, no, it's all right. I, I, I just want to ask a question. Everyone's that, too excited. I, I just want to... I, <laughs> I wonder why. Kind of drilling in, as you said then, though, if you, as an expert in this area, if someone showed you the synthetic psilocybin and then showed you the natural psilocybin, is there any difference? Is it is it really just... No. A, no, there you go. It's, it's the same. Absolutely the, not. That's a... Yeah. <laughs> so it needs to be 99 point something percent pure, mm-hmm. and it has to be chemically identical in all ways. Yeah, from, a, from an efficacy point of view, it doesn't matter where it came from. Mm. There are other environmental considerations, of course, and expense and mm. all that sort of thing that maybe it'll be better to get it from a natural source. Mm. But as far as it... Whether it's a different drug or not, absolutely not. As long as you can prove they're chemically identical. Mm, there you go. So it's the same thing. Okay. Dan, you were, you were asking, could we make it in other ways? And one thing that we're interested in, we've started doing a bit of work on, is convincing microbes to make the psychoactives for us. So bacteria or yeast. So one of my favourite biologicals. Yeah, I imagine the idea of growing yeast in a big vat mm. and the yeast produce a nice psychoactive compound and they exude it out into the medium. So you don't even have to break up the yeast to get it out and they do it continuously. Oh and then you just extract that product out of the out of the brew. Wow. And you feed the yeast on Vegemite or something. You know, you, <laughs> you, you, you take very, you, you know, you grow up your yeast and you feed it on really cheap food mm-hmm. with some water and warmth and some salts and so on. And then it happily brews away and keeps expelling the psychoactive and you extract the psychoactive out. And if you get that working well, then that's better than making synthetically or harvesting endangered plants. It's like you're a tiny farmer. Like just yes. putting grass in and getting all this expensive milk yeah. out. Is that yes, genetic? Yes, you can't see the cows. They're so small. <laughs> yeah. Is that genetic? You have to genetically modify the yeast? Yeah. Yes, you have to. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's. Yes. Yeast or bacteria? Yep. yep. So the way you do that is you look at. Now, I'm, that's not my field, and it sounds easy when I say it, but it is bloody difficult. <laughs> but you look at how the plant's making it or how the mushroom's making it, and they study the biosynthetic pathway. So, for example, these things like dimethyltryptamine is is made biosynthetically from tryptophan, the amino acid tryptophan. Mm. Most organisms are making tryptophan, but the ones that want to make dimethyltryptamine take tryptophan and convert it on to dimethyltryptamine. Tryptophan the one from Turkey that sends people to sleep? I'm not sure about that one. (laughs) I've heard that too, Dan. I know what you're saying. It's something about, I've heard, I don't know if it's even true. We may get walked ashamed on that one. That's right. But that's us saying that. That's fine. Um, Yeah. It's it's, it's side, side note. Okay, so then they work out how the hell the plant or the mushroom is making it, and then they, you know, identify the genes, and then they work out how to incorporate those genes into into the yeast. I like those glow in the dark fish that they made by splicing in jellyfish DNA, but with mushrooms, because yeast is just a mushroom, right? Uh, well, it's a, a type of fungal. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the sort of pedantry we like. 
Yes, yes. So I'm getting more into the world of living things. I'm more uh, with the chemical side, <laughs> so I shouldn't say too much. <laughs> yeah. So you're developing a way to make these substances pure and to so people can then use them. So really what's happening is the CSIRO is being asked to using its expertise to make these things safely and easily for other companies to use. And therefore, it's that stamp of quality from the organisation because everyone knows that you do good work. That's the plan? Basically, the companies need to get access to these methods and quantities so that they can put them into clinical trials. Mm. And then if the clinical trial comes out well, mm. then they have the chance of making a commercial product. What does the CSIRO get out of it? I, I know it sounds very, <laughs> sounds very I, mean, I mean, beyond being, well, being amazing, but, you know, these are usually full cost recovery. They're not a profit. We're not making a profit out of it. But there are a few things we get out of it. One of it, a really important role of the CSIRO is to grow Australian businesses. Mm. And any sort of high tech business, if they're successful, that's a feather in our cap. Mm. And we can point to those companies saying, well, we helped them and now they're employing so many hundred people in well-paid jobs, in rewarding jobs. Mm. And in this case, they are bringing important medicines to Australian patients and to patients around the world. Mm. So it's reflected glory. Mm-hmm. Also, it makes them look real cool. Yeah. It's all the other things at CSIRO, nerd stuff like Wi-Fi and stuff. But now it's like <laughs> top shelf drugs, my my fam. <laughs> Some of those other things are actually pretty useful. Though. Yeah. So, so we've talked about how the drugs come into your field when they go out the other side are you do you work on like packaging them up into pill form or not yet but potentially because we do have a lab being set up now it's going to be a registered lab that will meet the requirements to produce drugs to give to people so it's a possibility that we might be doing some of the tableting but for small runs Hmm. because a lot of commercial companies can't be bothered making 200 pills Mm. Uh, for example if you're going to get us to do it then we're going to need to make thousands otherwise it's not worth us Mm. setting up for it so sometimes we do things that could be done commercially but they're too small for any commercial operation to be bothered with but that's generally not what we do we generally once we get to that point that we've developed a manufacturing method and we've documented it very carefully then it's usually the original company that came to us will set that up in their factory. So we might do technology transfer, advise them on what equipment to buy and show them how to do it. Maybe even a scientist will go in and run it mm. in their factory. Or they might get a subcontractor, a toll manufacturer they're called, so a separate company that, that their job is to make medicines for body. But it's registered and meets all the requirements that the Therapeutic Goods Administration requires. If you were to go, oh, look, we've done it, Like here's, we've got the process for you, and here's the end result, would that be just like a, a Petri dish full of goo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you mean prototype yeah. prototype medicine? Yeah. Yeah. So it could be in the cannabis area, one of the medicines is often cannabis extract dissolved in, in vegetable oil. So it might be a little bottle, amber bottle with some oil inside and says that, and we say this, mm. there's cannabis in there. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Believe us. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Or it could be a powder. It depends on the, mm. depends on the, yeah, or it could be a goo, like you say, or some cannabis extract is pretty horrible looking, gooey, <laughs> smelly stuff, but it could be that. You've talked about a lot of plant-based things, but the one I'm thinking of, LSD, as far as I'm aware, is utterly synthetic. It's not, doesn't produce itself in nature, I think. Is that something that is worked on in this? There are at least one company in Australia that's pursuing LSD and LSD analogs mm. uh, as potential medicines. The main ones that people are, and you might want to get on, ask about some of these others as well, but the main mm. ones that are being put into trials at the moment are psilocybin for mushrooms, mm. LSD and MDMA. Yes, but LSD is a derivative of a natural product right. of the ergo alkaloids that occur in uh, grain infestation. Okay. I think it's fungus that grows on rye grass that when people ate that, those grains in Europe and were infected with this, and I think it might occur in Africa as well, mm. that were infected with this organism. They got something called ergoism. Mm. It's a sort of fairly nasty sort of ailment. So LSD is a synthetic derivative of of these ergo alkaloids. Okay. And that's part of one of the 16 things that you're working on? Yep. Okay. That just... Oh, that we have the license to work yes, on. Yes, the license to work on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One thing that scientists need to do, if they want to develop new synthetic analogues and hopefully get better activity or improved improved performance, they always need to compare the activity of the new compounds against a positive control. Mm-hmm. And so 
if people want to make analogues of LSD or they want to get elicit the same sort of response that LSD has, then they need to compare LSD in these tests. Mm. It needs to be run in the test as well. So mm. okay. that's another reason for us needing it in our, in our uh, list of psychedelics in our licence. And I've read things like LSD are going to be used for testing for PTSD, for psychiatric issues like that. So serious tests of doses of LSD. It's it's not, once again, it's not for fun. It's actually, it, it may have some really positive effects for people with, with very strong mental illnesses. So uh, Yes, if, 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 yes. If, these psychedelics are really of, of great interest for treatment-resistant depressions, mm. syndromes like PTSD mm. and addictions as well. Mm. And end of life anxiety, of course, mm. and palliative care. Yes, important, really important stuff. On the other side, so we talk about the things like LSD, which are totally unnatural, I guess, maybe a strong way of putting it. Have you worked with anything in Australia, like indigenous plants? Because that's a, we don't really know. You said you went down the country, you find different things. Is there a connection with indigenous Australians and getting their knowledges of their plants and medicines, working with that? Well, the jury's out on that as far as I can tell at the moment. It's possible, but a lot of these things are closely guarded secrets by the indigenous people mm. and in some ways it's not polite to even ask them mm-hmm. but there are native plants that contain psychedelics and mm. we don't know i personally don't know whether indigenous cultures use them in the past mm-hmm. there are theories that they may have mm-hmm. but i think out of politeness we should if they wish to tell us yes that's fine <laughs> but if not if they don't that's also fine. Absolutely, yes. I was just interested if you'd worked on that, that side of things. One of the projects we will start soon will probably use – well, we'll use native plant, mm, yeah. Interesting. When I discovered that, that there are native plants that contain psychedelics, I was pretty surprised. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. I thought that magic mushrooms were oh, endemic in Australia. That's one of them, That's right? correct. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yes. And so, yeah, they contain psilocybin. Yes. That's, that's what I've heard. It's not – when you say sorry, <laughs> down, do you mean, do you mean in, as in only in Australia? They only grow in Australia or as in they also grow in Australia? Because they grow all over the world, don't they? I think they believe they originated from Australia and spread around the world. Really? That's one. I, wow. Yes. Okay. I've learned something. So, wow, Australia brought psilocybin mushrooms to the world. There you go, Australia. There you go, world. There would be – That blows your other, mind. I mean, a, a certain psilocybin – producing mushrooms mm. from Australia, mm. but I think there are mushrooms that produce the same mm. compound that didn't originate in Australia. They're, they're particularly good at it, I think, the ones, the Australian ones. <laughs> like, like everything we do, we're just better at it. Yes. And I so will like point- everything we have in Australia, it's more toxic than most of the rest <laughs> of the world. Yes. That's right. Else. I'm just going to point out now, I'm going to put in the disclaimer, please don't go into your local forest and eat random mushrooms, listeners. I'm sure you wouldn't, but just don't, don't do it. Don't, don't, don't do it. Because you yeah, there's probably been plenty die. of poisonings. Mm. Plenty of poisonings, plenty of people dying from <laughs> right. taking the wrong mushroom. That's right. And if you think it's the wrong mushroom, it is. There you go. Probably is. The thing I understand about mushrooms is that the ones that are really deadly uh, look identical to the ones that look really delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Human beings went through a lot of iterations of that experiment, I tell you. It's like <laughs> to work that one out. Uh, actually, I've got something more to say about mushrooms if you're interested. Please. So there's a theory that the psychoactive substances that were used in Central America and the Amazonian rainforest, the whole idea of using psychoactive substances from nature, some people believe dates right back to the Finns prior to migration of humans into North America and down through North and then down into South America. Because, you know, the indigenous people in the Americas, they believe they came across from Siberia, across mm. into oh, right, yes. into Alaska and then down through. Mm. That's how they got there. Mm. And the theory is that that mushroom, the red one with the white spots, mm-hmm. <laughs> that is used by shamans in northern Europe, mm. the old whole idea of that potentially originated all the way back to the ancient Finns. And that idea was carried across Siberia into North America and they found local varieties. And when they got to the Amazonian rainforest, that's just a biodiversity extravaganza. Mm. And they were, fi- they were able to find interesting psychoactive right. plants there. They said, finally, this migration has been worth it. This is yeah. what we set out for. <laughs> right. We were getting too resistant to the stuff in Europe. 
Yeah. Finally, yeah. jackpot. <laughs> Amazon rainforest. On the way, the cactus was pretty good on the way, but this is the best. <laughs> we're we we going to stay here now. We're all fine now. We love this. We love this rainforest. So, Doctor Peter, when people think about your work and what you do, what what should they know? What's the thing that like people like us just don't ask, or good interviewers, actually good interviewers on the ABC, never ask you that uh, you think we should know? I think you've asked a lot of pretty good questions, actually. Yes, there you go. Yeah, the main thing we do is filling that gap, mm. the translational science. It's really key to be able to produce these things clean and safely. We're interested in getting them from different sources, plants, making them synthetically, getting microbes to make them. Where would you and, like it to yeah. go? Like if in the future, if you could, if you were suddenly the czar of psychedelic research, what would be your end goal? Well, one of the, I guess it's not really my goal, but. Hold on, I've got to find my notes somewhere. <laughs> He's just checking his legal. Hang on, oh. what can I say here? <laughs> it's about producing drugs that act in the appropriate time frame. Mm. So psilocybin, for example, if you take it, I think the effects last for almost eight hours. Mm. So in the clinical setting, that's not so convenient. A nurse needs to stay with the person for all that time. Mm-hmm. Dimethyltryptamine, on the other hand... To help brush a- the spiders, all the invisible spiders off, I imagine... <laughs> Yeah, things like that, yeah. So, yeah, they shouldn't be left alone, basically. But dimethyltryptamine, on the other hand, is very short-acting. It's very rapidly metabolized and and got rid of your system, out of your system really quickly. Mm. So one of the goals is to develop medicines that have a sort of intermediate time frame, you know, the Goldilocks time yeah. frame, not too short and not too long. We're paying by the hour here, and these nurses are expensive. So an hour and 90 yeah. minutes is all we want. Yeah. That's all we need, for goodness <laughs> sake. Yeah. But- <laughs> so how do you do that? One way is to make synthetic versions that act in the appropriate time frame and still have the right effects. Mm-hmm. Another one is to make mixtures where, for example, in ayahuasca, there are components that slow down the metabolism of dimethyltryptamine, which you think about it, the indigenous people discovered this is mm. pretty incredible. Mm. They had a lot of time. <laughs> true, true. But it's still amazing <laughs> when you think about it. So these dimethyltryptamine is metabolized by an enzyme known as monoamine oxidase. And so that, that will metabolize the dimethyltryptamine pretty quickly, gets it out of your system. But in ayahuasca, there are components that are inhibitors, mild inhibitors of monoamine oxidase. So those things tune the rate of decomposition of dimethyltryptamine. And if you get the ratio right, then you, you've got a medium-acting drug. You can, pretty, you can t- pretty incredible. You can tune oh, wow. the timing of drugs. That's okay. That's, that's pretty full on. Uh, so you have a very special set of skills there. Do any of those skills bleed over into your personal life? <laughs> like, are you like really good at brewing beer or, uh, or do you make your own soap? <laughs> I don't brew beer because I then I'd drink it and I'd drink way too much, <laughs> mm-hmm. way too much beer and I'd be spherical. <laughs> uh, my, I have a genuine interest in plants, so I very much enjoy gardening and wandering through the forest and, you know, looking at different plants. And Hey, that's the part we're doing that project <laughs> for that company. Hey, that's something similar. Maybe they'd be mm-hmm. interested in that one. Yeah, so, like, oh, that's delicious. That's delicious. That will fuck you up. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the last question I have to ask is when you say what you do, does anyone say, so you're like Walter White from Breaking Bad. Do you ever get, oh, yeah. get that's, oh, that's yeah, the obvious yeah. gift? Got, I thought it would be, yes. People were threatening to stick that, the picture of that guy up on my um, <laughs> on my door. In fact, there was a picture up in the corridor, which was pretty good. That It was a picture of Walter White, and he was sitting behind a giant pile of cash. <laughs> and the the caption was, well, you told us to improve our external earnings. <laughs> well, you'll have to just buy that hat he has. That, that's all you'll need and finish the, uh, finish the look. Doc- oh, yeah. Dr. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. It's been a trip. I'm sorry. I had to get that in there. Uh, we look forward to reading more about this and the CSIRS work and hopefully doing some excellent work with people with problems in the future using your uh, research. Great. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you again so much to Dr. Peter Dugan for coming in and explaining the (laughs) mid-process. It's that thing of if you want to have drugs that can help people based on hallucinogenics, how do we how do we get there? And the fact that we can even have that conversation now is pretty cool. But also the fact that we have to wait till 2022 to have that conversation is not necessarily cool. It should have been a bit earlier than that. But it's just weird how it all... I'm, oh, I'm always fascinated. When you're at high school... 
people are like, what do you want to do for a living? And you, you go, oh, well, I guess I'll be a fireman or an astronaut or something. There are thousands of jobs that we have no idea mm-hmm. exist. Mm-hmm. And they are so fascinating. And there, there's a job out there for everyone mm-hmm. if they just knew who to ask. It's a lot of the time, I think it's if you become a scientist or if that's what you want to go into, science and research, if you, if you ask them 20 years after they had their degrees all done, were you expecting to be here right now doing this? They go, oh, no, no idea. D- this job didn't exist. Yeah, you, know, you get opportunities. An opportunity comes up and you go, well, I'm trained here and this thing is slightly off to the left of that. And then, then you do something else that's slightly more off to the left. Slightly more, in the end, you're trying to synthesize hallucinogenics <laughs> for Australia's National Science Organization. <laughs> Just amazing. <laughs> it's, it's very cool. I'm very excited to see where this goes. Very, very, very interested to, to follow this down. Petrichor. <gasps> the smell of rain. Exactly. Well, the smell of the earth after rain, to be more technical. It's, we all kind of, we all know what it is. We've all watched the Doctor Who episode. We, that's where we all learned what Petrichor was. Oh, I, I knew what Petrichor was long before that. Ooh, look at you. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't. <laughs> Why, have they mentioned it again? No, no. In one of the terrible episodes? No, <laughs> no, no, no. It was, wait. yeah, no, I, I remember, I remember it being mentioned once in like an amazing episode of Doctor Who. It was. Something that we haven't seen in a good half a decade. Let's not go down that rabbit hole right now, but. <laughs> This is not, this is not Raven on. This is not. <laughs> so we, yes, so Petrichor, the smell of the earth after rain. This is something a lot of people know about. Maybe you're just hearing about this word for the first time. It's a lovely word. I found out recently where that word came from and more importantly, how Petrichor happens. Well, Petra, is that like the same root as pe- a Petri dish? No, Petra is in rock. All right. So, and in front I've heard it's Petra and Ichor, so it's like Earth blood is the supposed oh, is supposedly nice. the. But I feel that that's some. I've been looking into that, and it, hmm, there's no actual evidence that's where it comes from. But it does. It feels like someone's back. It's a backronym. It's kind of like a. Hmm, but we're not too sure. But it's it's Petrichor. I stumbled across the fact that Petrichor was termed and actually discovered, if you want to call it discovered, or at least scientifically worked on by Australians. So Australia invented the word Petrichor, and it was in the 1960s, 1964, and it was a scientist by the name of Isabel Baer and Richard Thomas. So it was a woman and a man scientist working together and they started They made a beautiful baby piece of research. <laughs> they basically did. And so they, they were like, well, hang on, what is Petrichor? Okay, well, it's the smell of earth after rain. But, but what's what, doing it? What's the mechanism? Yeah, but, but, but that was, and I realized, I read that and went, oh yeah. My brain at some point went, oh, it's the smell of earth after rain. Oh, that's it. Job done. <laughs> I went, but that's not an answer. That's just the description. But I'd never thought about it for years, about where it actually comes from. And, and thank goodness in the 60s, Isabel Baer and Richard Thomas had thought of this. They didn't, of course, discover Petrichor. They just termed it scientifically. Many people for a long time been talking about the smell. And it's always been, if it's a light rain, on arid dirt. It's normally arid dirt that gets that Petrichor kind of smell. So, And it's normally yeah, light rain at the start, and it seems to create a lot more an aerosol at that point. So people go, hang on, so it's something in different types of soil, but normally dry soils. What's going on here? What they discovered, even well before it was discovered, in India, there were perfume companies or perfume perfu- perfumeries, perfumeries, perf- people who make perfumes, who would actually... With centariums. Ca- centariums. Had captured the smell in sandalwood oil. And actually huh. produced it as a perfume for people to buy. They they knew that it was happened. At, they went, oh, it's raining quickly. Get out there and actually make you know make <laughs> capture the scent, capture the raindrops. Yeah. So they called it earth perfume or, or mat- matika atara, but they didn't know the process. Like they didn't know where it was coming from. They just had this smell. It, is it the raindrops hitting the dirt and then a chemical process happening with the Ooh. dirt getting wet? Oh, okay. Interesting. Like, obviously, the little bits of rain are going to kick up mm-hmm. and disturb dust. Mm-hmm. So if all that dust is settled, all the light elements are sitting there and waiting, and then it gets mm-hmm. kicked up. But you don't get it with wind. Wind would dry it out. So maybe there needs to be a moistness. Oh, I love I love how you're thinking. I love how you're thinking this. For the scent to come out. Because dry stuff doesn't really smell as much as wet stuff. No, that's right. Now, earth does have a smell. Earth has a smell called geosmin, and that's a chemical in the earth. 
So when you get that loamy, earthy, you know, ooh, good earth, ooh, I've got good earth here, or that muddy kind of smell. Like soil. Soil, soil. Basically soil. that smell. Yeah, and, and that comes from a chemical called geosmin. There has something to do with what we're talking about here as well, but it's not geosmin. Geosmin is not the smell. Is Otherwise, I would have just said the smell of earth after rain is geosmin. So is it's this, not is there something geosmin. getting caught up in the rain droplet that's Ooh. important? Because rain is going to pull all the pollen and pollutants out of the air. Rain is the release mechanism. It's not part of the smell itself. So the smell's coming from the ground. Smell is coming from the ground. It's coming right. from inside the ground, Dan, Yes. It happens around clay soils, silicate soils. So it has to be porous soils that can can absorb something. Is so it, it won't happen. Worm fart. Is it worms worm? are like whoa, come to the surface, <laughs> and then that's they, and that's just what worms smell like. I like you've been reading too much Dune, and no, but but once again, <laughs> you know, it's spicy, spicy, oh, so spicy. I would never have worked this out, so I, I'll put you out of, out of, out of, and the audience out of their misery. I was really fascinated by this. It's an oil, so it's an, not, not, not as in like an oil from a more like an essential oil than oil from you know from the ground cars. Well, oh, yes, <laughs> I was like, hang on, how's it it? Not like petrochemical oil, but it's it's plants basically. It's plants. Well, so it's petrochemical oil. Petro. Oh my, hang on. Uh, don't, don't confuse me. It's, I can't. I can't. I can't like handle it. All, all the oil comes from plants originally. Well, yes, that's very true. That's very true. All right. So this oil, yep. stop it. This comes oil from comes, comes from plants and yep. so it's the, the parts of the plant. So over time, the smell is released. So what Joy and Richard discovered is that they steam distilled rocks that are being exposed to warm, dry conditions. And they discovered this yellowish oil came out of the rocks. And it came from plants. So it's part of when plants fall over and decay or they release pollen and all the stuff you were talking about before. Mm-hmm. It, it all kind of gets pushed in, it gets stuck inside and it becomes this oil. It becomes this, this yellowy substance. That yellowy substance gets absorbed. It's happening all the time, but we don't detect it because it's so mm. um, minute in quantity. And it has to get trapped inside something that can hold it. So like a sedimentary rock. Yes, yeah, a clay, actually clay rocks, which have a, a lot of silicates, a lot of spaces for stuff to go inside or get trapped yeah. around the, the so bits and pieces. So it needs to be a bit porous and yes, that plant that's the matter gets incorporated in. Yes, the, the oil does. Yeah, it gets seeped in and it sort of coats all the grains and it's stuck there. It's not going to go anywhere else. It's not going to flow away. It's, mm. it's inside the rock. And then you have a dry, like very dry spell and a lot of this builds up over time. And then suddenly the rain happens. A lighter rain happens. It's normally better because of the heavy rain will wash Just the wash it, it into away. the creeks. There it is. And so if you have a light rain, it hits it and it knocks it into the sky. The oil is released and you get the smell that we call petrichor. So it's a mix of the oil from the Which plant. is why we associate it with the beginning of rain. Yes. That's right. Because after too much rain, it's all washed away. Yep. And well, you're not going to smell it, but it's a mixture of the oil from the plants and the geosmin I mentioned before. And geosmin is created in soil by blue-green algae. And so a blue-green algae and some sort of bacteria, they make that smell in the soil. So active soil is a living, churning mm. thing. So that's geosmin. So it's geosmin mixed with this plant juice and <laughs> oil and then released into the air. And that is what we call petrichor. And I was super excited. So it's kind of like getting blood from a stone. It's it is kind of like getting blood from a stone. It yes. is petrichor. I think yeah, it kind of it kind of is. So mustard plants have been cultivated since two thousand BC. They are a magic plant that almost all popular vegetables come from. Brassica. Now brassica has been cultivated to create cabbage, rapeseed, kale, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, turnips, also collard greens, kohlrabi, and rutabaker. Mm. It also gives us many edible seeds. Abyssinian mustard, elongated mustard, Indian mustard, brown mustard, leaf mustard, sarepta mustard, broadbeet mustard, black mustard, and Asian mustard. The Zhao dynasty in China worked out that they could crush these seeds up and make a paste that they used as an appetizer. I love the fact that everyone, even in history, makes mustard because food just was garbage. Like, everyone's like, ugh. So boring. I have to eat this goddamn potato. This rice sucks. Oh, Jesus. Wheat. No more wheat. And oh, like, yeah. I'm just, Food I'm put back anybody... then was terrible. Yeah. So you just put anything on there. You'd go, yep. and it tastes like rot and horror. I'm just yep. going to cover it in mustard. 
Yep. Carrots were a tiny little pokey thing that tasted like dirt. Bananas yeah. were a tiny little pokey thing that hung off a tree and tasted yeah. like dirt. Tomatoes were tiny. Tomatoes were like as small as like radish we have today. Like tomatoes were really small. Mm-hmm. Just crazy. So like berries. Yeah, berries. Yeah. And yeah, just, and we just. Is exactly what they are. It's a fruit. It's a fruit. Yes, that's right. We, yeah. So, the Zhao dynasty, they were eating as an appetizer. Just around about the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, we find a recipe for mustard paste mixed with spices, onion, honey, vinegar, and or fish, and it was used as a glaze for wild boar. Ooh. All those roast pigs in Asterix covered in mustard, mm. honey glaze mustard. In the 13th century, mustard became a big deal in a little city in France called Dijon. Oh, and this is where the French style mustard comes from. I didn't realize Dijon mustard came from a place called Dijon. I thought it was a name of a person. <laughs> I really did. Dijon. Dijon. John. Dijon. D- and then apostrophe John. Maybe it was. I, maybe it was a, <laughs> like the lead a, singer of Silverchair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Daniel Johns. <laughs> Daniel Johns. Dijon, yeah, D- Dijon, Dijon mustard. He made Dijon, mustard. He made, he should. Oh, uh, Daniel Johns, if you're listening, and why wouldn't you be? You should make a mustard. It'd be the funniest com- uh, joke in the world. Dijon's <laughs> mustard. It'd be the best. I always thought maybe it was the mustard that you gave to someone when you broke up with them. Dear John D- Mustard. D- Dear John Mustard. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah. B- All right. But in French. All right. Thank you. Thank you for going with me on that one. Yeah. I, I see that. I see that. <laughs> and I now know the most delicate way of finally replacing you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> A gift from Dan? Is it? Oh. Oh, it's so spicy. <laughs> so like spicy. My, like my tears. Too spicy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, mustard then made its way across the channel where in England they stored it as dry mustard balls, which was my granddad's nickname in the war. (laughs) And they then would blend those with wine or vinegar to make a small serve of mustard. They mix it with horseradish. And that's how your father was born. (laughs) Yep, that's it. So they mix it with horseradish, which gave it a, a distinctive taste and heat. So hot English mustard, very different to Dijon mustard. Hmm. So did the English make it hotter? Did they, they made normally, it hotter. Normally English make things blander. You know, that's their thing. Of make it bland, as bland as possible, please. Well, we'll make wait. it bland so that we can really taste the hot English mustard. Yeah. Or maybe they were like, those French people over there with their fancy mustard. Look at them. I'm going to make it so hot it'll burn my face off. That'll teach the French. Oh, God. Oh, Lordy, it hurts. The point is they hate the French. That's the point I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's science. (laughs) So horseradish. Horseradish Mm. is from the root of the horseradish plant. Mm. And Gregoire, you'll never guess what style of plant the horseradish is. So the one you said what? The, 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 well, I know what it is. yes. No, don't be silly. Ah. It's Amaracia. Amaracia and Brassica. Our sisters in the Brassicaceae family. <laughs> of course. So we've got our French and English mustards. Now, French mustard, you go to the shop and buy French mustard. It's not mm-hmm. actually French. It was mm. created in the UK. So the French mustard is Dijon and French oh. mustard is English. Not confusing at all. Not confusing at all. And also, I want to, you said before about horseradish, I read... If you go and get like wasabi from like, you get a hand roll. The one thing I'm, I bring up hand rolls, I have seen to do in every podcast, whatever. You get like a sushi hand roll and you mm-hmm. get wasabi. Okay, we want some wasabi with that. Yeah, yep. please. It's probably not wasabi. You've probably never eaten wasabi. It's probably very expensive. Very expensive. So what you've eaten is cultivate. horseradish. It's basically a horseradish based thing. Yeah, there you go. So yep. it makes sense. It's just horseradish, which is very different to wasabi, which mm. is also in the Brassicaceae oh. family. Oh, okay, right. Oh. So they're all sisters to the yeah. same plant. Yeah. A very angry plant that really wants us to stop eating it, please. And Ooh, yeah. And we'll, and, and we'll make it as hot as possible. But humans are like, mm, pain. Yeah, pain. We do God, that. Now, pain. we're up to the 1900s. In America, in 1904, yellow mustard was introduced at the World's Fair. It fell through the production and marketing pipelines of the American system and resulted in mild American mustard, mm. which is scorned by every country on Earth. Mm. But we don't say anything because they have a lot of guns. And yeah. we, yeah. we don't, and the greatest warriors, not, well, the most powerful military in the world, we don't. 
I'm not going to go to war with them over mustard. That's just not what we're doing here. Yeah. United States, yeah. just hear that. We're not. Smile your, better. Your mustard's it's not, fine. Your mustard's your, fine. Your luminescent yellow oh, mustard. That's it's good. Fine. You, you can wipe it. You can wipe it on your faces and hang out in forests. I was going for a military thing, but I realized you'd see them more you, easily. Like like woad. Like woad. Yes, that's that, that's what I'm yellow for. instead of blue. Yes. Yeah. Like that's Braveheart, true. but yes. with mustard. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Keep all the bears away. They have bears. Yeah. I mean, you'll never take their freedom. What, the bears' freedom? The Americans. Oh, right. No. Oh, no, the, mus- the bears, you can take their freedom and then okay. you can cultivate bile from them. <laughs> Those things are a gold mine. I don't think the Americans do that. Do they? No, that's a European thing, I think, or a Russian thing. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure some Americans have. <laughs> Just recreational. Look, look, that's right. You're freedom. Out the- freedom. You're out, the- you're out in the Appalachian Mountains where I assume there are bears. And you're like, I've got a weekend to kill and a bear. I'm going to drain its bile. And make some kind of hooch. What are we talking about? We have gone well off topic at this point. We are talking about Australian mustard. Thank God. Now, Australian mustard is simply a marketing ploy for English-style mustard, but mm. for steaks. Oh, really? Yes. So, we, so, we- <laughs> so it's not a proper Australian mustard. It's just the same stuff that we imported from the other side of the planet and just mixed it up special with different spices and stuff to make it good for steaks. When did we do that, though? Because I'm trying to work it. Because Australians for a long time had a, oh, yes, Britain. I'm also British. Like, for a long time, they were very much about trying to point out how British they were. And only kind of recently have gone, oh, I'm Australian, mate. It's great. That's become, you know, the cultural cringe has kind of fallen off a little bit. So I wonder when we went... No, no, it's not English mustard. It's Australian steak I mustard. think this turned up in the last 50 years or so. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, made, that would make sense. But, Gregoire, Brassicaceae mm-hmm. is a very flourishing plant that's been around mm. for a million years. Ooh. There are 19 varieties of this plant in Australia. Ooh. They have fruit, and the fruit has seeds. In theory, we should be able to cultivate those, crush them up, and make proper Australian mustard. Did Indigenous Australians already do this? They did not. Ah, missed a trick there, Indigenous Australians. What's going on? I believe that they ate some of the fruit. Oh, okay, right. Just didn't make a mustard out of it. No. Okay. Citation the, needed, of course. But <laughs> Now, the different varieties of mustard come from different blends of other ingredients. Vinegars, oils, honey, wines, different complementary spices, different varieties of plants, and different ways of crushing the seeds. Mm. Some types of mustard are hotter than others, and, of course, some people mix in peppers or horseradish or wasabi to heat them up. All of the heat of these ingredients stems from the same natural process. An organosulfur compound called allyl isothiocyanate. Mustard plants are delicious. Mm. The plants themselves. When the seeds are crushed, this compound gets released and tastes hot and pungent. Most herbivores hate this. Mm. Mm. So a cow comes along. Fucking cows. God, I hate them so much. <laughs> and, it, and it's only going to take one bite. It's not going to destroy the plant. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the compound is so strong that it actually damages the plant. Wow. The plant stores two separate glucosinolates that only form the mustard oil when it's crushed together. Now, of course, human beings being freaks, we love it, mm. which is mm-hmm. against the plant's wishes. Yeah. But then we cultivated the shit out of it, and now it's everywhere, which is for the plant's wishes. Yes. yes so two is. wrongs made a right. <laughs> It's so acidic and has antibacterial properties, so it will not grow mould, mildew, or bacteria. Mm. It does lose its pungency over time, though. If you wanted to start with dry mustard and only add liquid when you use it, you can extend the shelf life by an enormous amount. Mm. There are some mustards that aren't brassica, though, but they're all brassicaceae. No, hang on. Brassicacea. Sea? I don't know. I never know how to pronounce that. No one does. It's all made up. All all words are made up. It's fine. So next time you're frying up some cabbage and broccoli and Brussels sprouts and radish in some canola oil mm-hmm. and flavouring it with several types of mustard seed, horseradish and wasabi, take a moment to appreciate that this is all the same delicious plant. And then maybe add a little bit of beef, because f*** cows, that's why. <laughs> You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. Also to Greg at smartenough.org. 
go to website, press buttons. We're oh not going to press all the buttons. Through it. Just press the buttons. We've actually had people believe in comments, which is lovely. People don't leave comments, not because they don't want to leave comments, but also because who goes to websites to leave comments? Nowadays, you just want to yell at your phone and it transfers it into the brains of everyone around you, you know, through whatever social app. So websites are kind of like, we're, it's old school, man. We're old school. Like We're like yep. OG. Yep. We are OG. Pop- Can I just point that out? We are actually OG. Bloody Proper hell. internet. We're like, oh, that's right. Homespun, homerolled. That's right. We should have a GeoCities. We should put it at all GeoCities. A big thank you to our Tier 2 Patreon supporters who paid us $5 or more a month. That's true. They paid us, my goodness, real so, money. So a big thank you to Andrew Trousdale, Andrew Potts, Elizabeth Yunkin, Matt Ewers, Christopher Ravel, Gronya Maguire, Andrew Whitehurst, Britta Rogowski, Matthew Toy, Lindsay Jenkinson, Avi Greenbury, Ivan, and Alana Mitchell. Thank Ooh. you guys all so much. We really appreciate your support. Well, people, not just guys. Sorry. Yeah, good point. Yeah, all the guys and all of the lady guys. <laughs> I feel like I haven't done enough. To- I, I, is that- oh, well, on with the show. On with the show. It can't be fixed. There's no way of editing this madness. No. This is just released as is every time. If you are on the tier three of our Patreon list, then I have to insult you. How mathematical today? Oh, tier two, tier three. We don't even talk about tier ones. They get nothing. It's like, I like to think of them all as friends. Look, I've been thinking a lot about how much we faff around at the end Mm. with the same information. And so I'm like, you know, some episodes, let's just skip past all of the guff. Mm. And get the stuff done because people are just hanging out for the like the post episode things that we cut out. I think they like our banter. I think they're just like whatever they say. What those two delightful, delightful men are chatting about? Like whatever you we, know, we could read them. We could just read like, you, read a newspaper. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm. The bulk of the podcast will go through, and then it'll be like, "All right, well, thanks so much for the, the podcast." And I can see there's like another three minutes left, and I'm like, "Nope, bye bye." <gasps> no, because so I just this, skip. But, it's gone. But, this is, but, this, but anyone listening to this now, they need to know that at any moment we could. This is where the, the madness could happen at any moment, man. This is where this is like. Yeah, but they're not going to learn anything. But they not, know they're not going to learn anything. Now. Oh, that, but it's but but they may learn something about the human condition, Dan. And the nothing simulac- they want to know. And the simulacra of the human valuable. condition. Valuable. Like, stop talking us down, Dan. For God's sakes. All right, I'll start talking other people down. <laughs> the tier three patrons. I am to insult them now, Gregoire. I have been thinking about atomic bombs falling into the hands of people who shouldn't have them. <laughs> I can't imagine why. I, I actually can't imagine why. Sorry, but if I missed something, if I, I didn't read the news today, should I be concerned about something right now? Certain documents that shouldn't have left a certain oh, place. Oh, that person. Oh, yeah, yeah, that right. Person. Yes, yes. Oh, I see. Oh, sorry. That's look, Blair. Yeah, just one document about atomic weapons. Nah. That's, that's just the normal behaviour of this particular individual. I, I recently heard described as Agent Orange. Mm. So these insults are based on the atomic age. Mm. Steve Stewart, you are a non-critical mass. Mm. You'll never go off. That's good. <laughs> don't don't sugarcoat these. Don't silver lining these. <laughs> You don't use, paying for that. You don't, you don't use silver, my friend. No, you definitely don't use... Not, it's not a dense enough metal. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Steve Eichenhout, people avoid exposure to you. <laughs> or you exposing to them. Either way works. <laughs> I like to say, oh, no. Last night I went out and got twenty-five milli Eichenhauts. Oh Jesus! You're going to take a you're going to take, you're going to take a lot of uh, you're going to take a lot of uh, sodium, not sodium, um, stevium. Uh, no, 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 no. Iodide. It bonds with the fallout. Mikhail Kedar. How can I say this politely? You cause reactions. Mm, not chemical reactions though. Nuclear reactions. Look, we don't need to sort of delve into the, 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 the subtlety someone, of the reactions he causes. Dan, all I'm going to say is someone decided to do a insult based on nuclear physics with a guy who's kind of into physics 
and I'm not going to be able to sit here. <laughs> it's going to be hard. If you do it, about, right. you do right. it about coding, right. my friend, you know, I'm going to sit here confusedly and nodding at you and going... You oh. know what? This is a show that celebrates pedantry. So <laughs> you do you. <laughs> no one else will. <laughs> Tom Siri, you're not what we call stable. Mm, mm. You have far too many, far too many electrons. No, proton electrons, sorry. That's chemistry. No one cares about chemistry. Far too many neutrons in there, and just the strong nuclear force cannot bind that nucleus together. All it takes is a little bit more to blast it apart. Are you as into physics as you say you are? Yes! I make a lot of mistakes for a physicist. There's not much wiggle room when it comes to physics. Brownian motion? Check. (sighs) Got me. (laughs) That's probably the nerdiest comeback in history. (laughs) Robert Shilton, you deplete me. Aww. Deplete. Yeah, I know. I just like, yeah. And finally, Danny Sores. You have a little boy that upsets Japanese women. <laughs> oh. oh. And thank you so much to our oh. favourite SARS, Al Batson, Scott Driscoll, Morton O'Hare, Michael Barnes and Eric Wilson, who I don't have to insult. They're nice people. They are the warm glow on the horizon. <laughs> no! I know what they are. They are the life-giving nuclear reactor in the sky, beaming down their radiation upon us from space. Yeah, that sounds nice. That's the, 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 yeah, the, Ah, yeah, your the, physics actually came in handy. Woohoo! <laughs> and as we always like to say, fuck cows. <laughs> <laughs> Because we, we can't, you know... Well, the media, I mean... You're still recording? Oh, okay. Oh, we can, <laughs> well, but this is where all the best stuff is. <laughs> Wearing a lab coat and stirring a, a big a big beaker. That's all they want. That's, that's and they it. need to do that thing yeah. over the top and go, could narcotics be the, a solution to your mental illness? <laughs> yeah. Listen to the rest of our show to exacerbate your mental illness. <laughs> You're one of the very few interviewees that we've had that specifically said at the start, oh, by the way, I went and listened to some of your stuff. So that's that's exceedingly rare, Peter. Most of them... Oh, no, no, no. Most people most people don't have time. It's just the real paranoid ones. Yes. It's been a handful of like, people who are like, the hell am I getting myself into? It's been good fun. It's been less nerve-wracking than I thought it was going to be. Smart enough. They always listen to Smart Enough. I don't. I very rarely listen to it. I listen to the end bit. I always go and find the end bit just just to make sure. Figure out which bit. I should have edited out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, Dan. Seriously, did you not read the room? You definitely shouldn't have not put that in air. I basically, I I just listen to the end bit and then crop it and send it to my lawyer. I go, hey, just so you know, this is what I said. This is what Dan's put in there. Just be aware this could become a thing in the future. He's like, yeah, sure, sure. All that does is train me to put the really litigious stuff in the, and leave it as the main <laughs> podcast. So mustard plants have been cultivated since 2000 sorry, BC. Sorry, sorry, I need to, I need to cut in there. The way you stop then, I really expected to suddenly hear, Sasquatch a Bigfoot, who is who? We all right. to, I don't know why. My brain was like, there's going to be a mustard beast? <laughs> anyway, obviously not. Colonel Mustard. <laughs> Creepy cryptid. He's been terrorising terrorizing your food aisles, ruining your hot dogs. Beating Mr. Black to death with a lead pipe. <laughs> this recipe made its way to Gaul, where Asterix, Asterix's village got their hands on it. <laughs> so all those delicious Asterix, roast pigs. Asterix citation needed again. Different sort of asterisks. Oh, right. Sorry. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Oblix oh. citation needed. <laughs> oh, Oblix asterisk is a good written joke. Yes. <laughs> That's surely where yeah. it comes from. That's blah, surely blah, 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 blah. Where... Oblix 
asterisk, <laughs> and then down the bottom it goes asterisk friends with asterisk. <laughs> I, Ah, that's, that's it's, a, it's not a it's not a I, podcast joke. I don't know where the joke goes, but it's yep. a good joke. Yep, yep. Okay. I, I like the fact that a lot of my listeners are like, "What the hell are they talking about?" Because <laughs> they don't even know who Asterix and Obelix are. Like they wouldn't. How would people know this? Of course yes, they, they do. do. Everyone knows about the Belgium comic from the nineteen seventies and eighties from Asterix the Gaul. Yeah, it's true. It's amazing and it's very popular. And if they haven't, they're well, then stop listening right now. <laughs> we don't want you as listeners. We don't want you. We're done. We're done with you. Everyone should we want go. cultured people. Maybe we should bring up the next the next book club, Asterix and Obelix. Yep. Some of those pictures are a little bit racist. Oh, but, uh, super, super racist. Like super Tintin. racist. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It is now. Yeah, that's true. Well, all those poor Romans. Imagine if you were an Italian person and all you get to see is these French people kicking the tar out of you. That's not nice. That's the greatest insult. That's how you... <laughs> you know, Hitler read that, you know, Asterix goes to Asterix and the Goths and was mm-hmm. like, F- that, I'm getting my revenge on that. I, did that timeline work out? I don't know if the timeline works out on that. Now... I have questions. Yeah. Did you just put in the thing about hating cows just so you could say the thing at the end? That's the reason that the mustard seeds are so spicy, is to stop the cow from eating them. Yeah. Right, yes, yeah. But what you want to know is why I suddenly developed like an intense hatred for yes. these cows that are simply grazing. Yes. Yes. Yes, I definitely added that <laughs> in order to make that end bit. <laughs> it's called <laughs> shelving an offer and then unshelving an offer. I Look, I noticed your clever shelving. As a comedic writer myself, I noticed the very subtle thing that you slotted in there. And I was going, this will have a payoff somewhere at the end. And at the end, it was just that you could swear at cows. <laughs> so you back-engineered swearing at cows and swear, that sounds insane. I better slot that in somewhere. It's still insane, oh, yeah. Dan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of... That's fine. You can hate cows, man. That's cool. Yeah. And you know what? Next episode, I'll love them again. <laughs> I'm whimsical like that. <laughs> sometimes he hugs them. Sometimes he punches them. Sometimes he eats them. That This is the whole way it goes. Sometimes he eats them while crying for them. Thank you for your sacrifice. <laughs> Realised I've forgotten to write a joke, so I quickly wrote one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was babbling. Excellent. Well done. <laughs>